welcome to Fast Talk, the Velo News podcast and everything you need to know to ride like a pro. Hello and welcome to Fast Talk. I'm your host, Chris Case, managing editor of Velo News, joined as always by a guy who will almost never turn his back on you, Coach Trevor Connor. It wasn't long ago that Grand Fondos were these strange events that were popping up in a few places here and there. Most racers simply didn't get them. Now you talk to some younger riders and they know all about Fondos, but they probably ask you, what's this road race thing all about? The Grand Fondo style event has exploded in popularity in the last decade. Somewhere between a race and a group ride, it has an appeal to a broad range of riders. Some show up to race all out on an epic 100 plus mile course. Others come to ride with friends and enjoy the accomplishment of a challenging and scenic route. The nice thing is, there is no right way to do it. This style of event accommodates both riding styles. Now we're seeing multi-day events like Oat Route that combine the challenge of racing through segments with the pleasure of a bike tour through some of the most scenic spots in the world. The question is, do you train for and approach these events differently from a weekend race or group ride? More than a few of you have asked us that exact question, so today we'll try to give you an answer. In this episode, we'll discuss first what the experience of a Grand Fondo or Oat Route is like and why they're becoming so popular, the different goals and approaches riders will take at these events, how to train and prepare for both the one-day Grand Fondo and the multi-day Oat Route style race. Hint, when it comes to the training, it's not as different as you might think. Four, the importance of pack skills and sticking within your comfort level. Five, nutrition and hydration for the event and why I love cookies so very much. Number six, final preparation in the week leading into the event. And number seven, strategies for both racing and riding a fondo as well as multi-day oat route style events. Our primary guest today is world hour record holder and oat route ambassador, Mr. Colby Pierce. He's been on the show enough now that he needs no introduction. But it is worth noting that the day we recorded this episode, it was snowing so hard that Colby actually showed up on his fat bike, covered in snow, saying, no worries, I didn't crash that much. Then he spit out a tooth. Along with Colby, we talked with Mitchelton Scott's Brent Bookwalter. Brent is an Olympian, a veteran of many Grand Tours, and the organizer of the popular Bookwalter Binge Grand Fondo. This year takes place on October 26th in his hometown of Asheville, North Carolina. We also touch base with three-time Grand Fondo world champion Bruce Bird. If that title doesn't impress you, you should also know that at the age of 50, Bruce finished 14th at Canadian Nationals in the pro race. Bruce also organizes a world's qualifier event called the Blue Mountains Grand Fondo in Ontario, where both he and Trevor are from. Hence, they both talk funny. Sorry. We'll post links and information about the Oat Root Calendar, Bookwalter Binge, and the Blue Mountain Grand Fondo on our website. If you're looking to try this style of event, these are three of the best. Now, prepare your cookies. Let's make you fast. This episode of the Fast Talk podcast is sponsored by Oat Root. What is Oat Root? Well, it's not a cycling tour and it's more than a road race. It's a multi-day Grand Fondo-style event where everyone starts together each morning and you can ride with friends all day. You can indulge your competitive side on timed sections if you feel like it, and explore iconic cycling destinations around the world. 
BoatRoot takes services to the next level with Pro Tour style support on the bike and rider focus amenities off it. Choose from a dozen events in 2019 in France, Italy, Norway, Oman, Mexico, and China. In the United States, there are still entries available for Oatroot Asheville in May and Oatroot San Francisco in September. Try something new in 2019. Try Oatroot. Today's episode of Fast Talk is brought to you by Whoop, the performance tool that is changing the way people track their fitness and optimize their training. Whoop provides a wrist-worn heart rate monitor that pairs to their app that provides analytics and insights on recovery, strain, and sleep. Know when your body is recovered or when it needs rest by getting to know your nervous system through heart rate variability and quality of sleep. Automatically track workouts and get strain scores that let you know how strenuous training was on your body and see even more data like average heart rate, max heart rate, and calories burned. Get optimal sleep times based on how strenuous your day was and track sleep performance with insight into your sleep cycles and stages of sleep, sleep quality, and sleep consistency. Whoop monitors heart rate 100 times per second, 24-7, to give you full insight into your day so you can optimize the way you train. Having used the Whoop myself, I can tell you it provides fascinating data that will change the way you train, recover, and perform. Whoop has provided an offer for Fast Talk listeners to get 15% off their purchase with the code FASTTALK. That's F-A-S-T-T-A-L-K. Just go to whoop.com, W-H-O-O-P.com, and plug in FASTTALK. So today we really want to dive into Grand Fondos. We've gotten a lot of listener questions and feedback about the, this type of event, about Haute Route, about uh, or Haute Route, this burgeoning f- type of, of race slash ride slash event out there, this make it your own adventure type type thing. So we want to dive into a lot of the different elements. And probably where we should start is defining this type of ride because there are a lot of different variations. Sure. Tell me about your first Grand Fondo experience or the experiences you've had on, on Grand Fondos, Trevor. Uh, my first is they're quite popular up in, in Canada now. There's probably as many Grand Fondos as there are actual road races now. Uh, so I started doing them up there. And we had one called a Centurion, which and this is what I was getting at. There, there's a bunch of different variations. The Centurion was just simply a road race. It didn't mm-hmm. have time segments. It was just one long segment. And it basically, you had starting corrals. You had the A group that was just there to race. You had a B group that was there to go hard and a C group that was there to sightsee. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was 100 miles and it was the, the, there were no time points. There weren't really stations. So it was pretty darn close to a road race. Right. And obviously, the origins here being Italian, Grand Fondo means the great version of the Grand Fondo, there's also sometimes a piccolo and a medio and different distances. But when we think of them, or at least when I think of the Grand Fondo, I think of a really quite a long day, a lot of climbing, a good hard effort in total. And the ones that I've done, Oat Root and the Golden Grand Fondo and some others, they've all had these timed segments. So it isn't a point to point First person across the line wins. And sometimes Grand Fondos aren't about winning at all. It's just about completing it, having the experience. But the ones I've been in, you take your time from each of the 
three segments, four segments, whatever it might be, add it up, and that's your, quote, winner for the day. And Colby, what are what have your experiences been? Yeah, I've done some oat roots the last couple of years in the Rockies, obviously, and as a, an ambassador for that event. And I've had some other Grand Fonda rides I've done. I did Levi's years ago, and I did Yenzi Fondo as well. And those, you know, while oat root does have the timed segment format, which we'll get into, I think, later quite a bit, the Yenzi Fonda, for example, was just more of a traditional Fonda style like you were describing, Chris. So people just went and they decided how fast they were going to go all day. And but there were rest stops scattered throughout the ride, throughout the route, and there were all different. There were also different route length options for Yenzi. There was, I think, there were two the year I did it, like a 60k or maybe 100k and, and 160k or whatever. And that said, people really made their uh, their own minds up how they wanted to go. Yeah, create your own adventure. Uh, create your own adventure. Some people were gung-ho to, to kind of treat it more like a race. And most of the riders, I would say, shot for the middle ground. And some people took a very relaxed pace and took as long as they wanted to do it. And and that's fine. So yeah. I think, like I said, the European routes over there, it actually is very com- can be very competitive, mm-hmm. very high level. Even though it's a mass start and the the crowds might be tens of thousands deep, at the front of the race, it's full-on racing. Agreed. So, yeah. 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 And we've mostly been just describing the, the Grand Fonda, which is a, a single day. But then you get into events yep. like Oat Route, which is multiple days. So it's, yeah. it's essentially mm-hmm. several Grand Fondas Stage race, row. yeah. It is or stage race. Ride the Rockies, right? That's yep. another yep. example of yeah. one here locally. Exactly. Like you said, in Canada, they're very popular. They're definitely becoming way more popular in the United States, too. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know... There's, I think there's several reasons for that. Just uh, people may be m- migrating away from the the crits because they're over that or it's harder to put on road races these days. And so it's a little easier where you're not having to close down roads all day or less expensive because you're not having to close down roads all day. In any case, yeah, they're popping up everywhere. European companies like Oot are coming over and establishing themselves here. And yeah, they're, they're mm-hmm. awesome events. Yeah, I think the organizer component of it is a, a big factor. Yeah. When you're organizing a, a road race and you can only have 100 people in, in a race at the most, general rule is you're going to lose money. At best, yeah. you're going to break even because you just have such low numbers. The advantage of this sort of event is you can appeal to both crowds. You can have that mm-hmm. race component. But you can also appeal to all those people that just want to go. It's all about just, I want to get to the finish line. I don't care how long it takes mm-hmm. me, but I want to do a 100-mile ride through the mountains. Yeah, it's and a you, marathon-type event f- right. for, for cyclists. And you can have way. thousands of people in it. Yeah. yeah, And it's also a destination thing. A lot of people turn this into almost a component of a bike yep. vacation or something like that. See a new place in the world, mm-hmm. in the country. You're not going to see too many Grand Fondos in unattractive places most of them are awesome locations beautiful scenery big climbs that sort of thing remote yeah it comes down to economics like you said trevor you've got 100 riders in each category tops and then the the road promoter can only have so many categories on the course at one time when you can open the doors to 2,000 riders and start them all at once then it solves the permitting problems as well that's so when you do an route, for example the time sections are almost always in the more remote stretches of road and you've always got moto guides to keep you safe and herd the cats over to the right side of the road but you go through the town of Crested Butte or through the Springs and you're obviously subject to road rules and it's not during a time section. So that solves the promoter's problems there. It also makes it safer for the riders inherently, which is a nice feature. So I think the big one of the big takeaways from this whole part of the conversation is that for someone who's thinking about a soft entry into racing, they're thinking about getting involved in racing, doing a multi-day Fondo type event or a one-day Fondo event is going to be a great way to potentially walk through that door. 
And I will say the one issue I have with them is if you are sitting second place in the Grand Fondo and you get a flat mm. and the vehicle is at the back of the entire group, it is the worst experience. You have no idea what it's like having 2,000 people say, you need a hand? You need a hand? You hit a certain point where you just pretend to turn your back to the I, entire field. I feel like you're you can't speaking hear from anybody. personal experience. One of the worst experiences of my life. I, the first 500 people I tried to say, no, I'm all set. Don't worry. And then you and then I just couldn't anymore. say it anymore. I just couldn't. Yeah. Well... And no. you're hiding until you saw that yellow Mavic car coming your way. And that was then very Canadian of you to feel so obligated. Very Canadian. So Canadian. Americans uh, would have given up after six or eight people. Well, that's the problem. It was a Canadian Grand Fonda, which uh, meant every single person uh, in the Grand Fonda I'm surprised felt the Canadian obligation to try to help me. That's great. I'm surprised you didn't weren't just overwhelmed, overwhelmed by people throwing tubes at you and pumps wheels. and uh, wheels, everything. Here, take my wheel. Please, please. I want you to have it. That's great. Sorry, please take my wheel. <laughs> Bruce Bird is a three-time World Grand Fondo winner in his age category. He also organizes a popular Fondo in Canada called the Blue Mountains Grand Fondo. I asked Bruce why these style of events are becoming so popular for both organizers and riders. You know, getting the road permit requires a lot of coordination with the local, all of the, the groups that are responsible for the maintenance of the road. And that goes to the police, fire, uh, the people who, of the town who represent the council. In order to do that, there's, yeah, there's a lot of requirements you have to meet. And to meet those requirements, there's a lot of expense that gets, is transferred. So for every crossing and here in Ontario, for every time there's a crossing where you don't have the right of, of way, so there's uh, like a four-way stop or a red light or something, so if you're having an event, you want to be able to ride through that and not stop and see what's going on with traffic. It's kind of fundamental. And you can't get that without a road permit. So you're plotting this course, and you're, what I love as a participant is a beautiful course, a challenging course. And I know, Trevor, you do too, because I see you at all the same events. Yep. Uh, the one and with a smile on your face. You're not riding around in a square or a circle, you know, 40 times. Uh, in a, you know, for a three-hour race. I'm talking about even road events, not even crit, which are its own discipline in of itself. And we have these shorter course uh, road events, which we seem to pop up more and more because it's harder to get the permit. The cost of getting the permit to have a big course sort of shrinks the course inevitably. All of a sudden, these races start costing uh, like a no-frills, um, no-prizes, kind of race, but meeting all the security requirements that keep the rider safe during the race. Now you're up to 150, 200, you have 300 riders total taking part. Nobody's kicking in to pay for it. It has to be the rider. And it's a real hard one to say, wait a second, I've already bought my bike. I've already, I've got, you know, to make sure I have the rack on my car to carry the bike, get the cap, to go up there, to get time off uh, away from whatever else I'm doing to get there and have my kits and everything. And now you want me to pay this X dollars? I was going to be something else in it for me. So it starts to be a real tough uh, sell because now you, you can't even afford anything else in it. It's quite challenging. So it leads towards an event where people aren't just competing for a race. All sorts of people want to get involved and they feel welcome. There's a lot of people riding with their friends in Grand Fondo. They want to be able to complete the distance. They put, they're doing a couple events a year, though. 
not 15, 20. They're not trying to race every other weekend or every weekend during the spring. So you want to appeal to those people saying, oh, this, this is an event you want to do. It's special. It's a, it's a beautiful event in our area, and it means something. And you'll feel that same sense of accomplishment when you finish if you're competing for the podium or if you're competing just to finish the event within within the time limit. So that's where the appeal of the of the Grand Fondo starts. Okay, now we've got enough people where we can hold this event, give it back a little more to the riders, um, and allow, and have an opportunity for people front to race and not and have a, a really interesting course. So I think that's a, a really key point. When you have this many participants, it allows you to have the sort of course that everybody gets really excited about. Yeah, and that's what inspires people. And for myself, when I started seeing on TV, the first thing I would watch is, is Tour de France. When I saw the footage of the, you know, what the riders were riding, I was completely inspired by that. And then you show up at a race and you race around the circuit. It's not as inspiring. So I started looking at events that had these great you know, courses that are inspiring as well. Uh, and, and that's what led me to, hey, how come no one's doing this? Well, I got a better step forward and, and do it, you know, help out the, the local racing team as well and organize uh, an event, uh, kind of event that I'd love to do. Bruce mentioned that these events can have over 2,000 riders, all with different goals. Let's get back to Colby and talk about the different approaches one can take to a Fondo-style event. Let's talk about the different approaches you can take to these different types of events. And Colby, I know you've you've probably in this room done the most, so why don't you talk about your approach? Well, I think it's important for riders to really keep in mind that any Fondo is, well, they're what I like to call passive-aggressive races, right? Because ostensibly, if you were going to race your bike, you would sign up for a bike race. So why do you sign up for a Fondo that isn't, in air quotes, race, but you get a number and you get results and there's a place, and some of them, in Europe at least, even have prizes, so that pretty much sounds like a race to me, and yet we're there to not race. So it gets a little confusing, and the, the definitions can be a bit ambiguous. And I think the the way you handle it depends on you. It depends on what you want to get out of it. Some people will treat a Fondo like a tour. They will decide to ride at whatever paces leisurely with their, their buddies or their group or their team. They'll stop at every rest stop for 15 or 20 minutes and eat and drink everything they want to, and they'll do that the whole day. And that's perfectly within... The scope of the event, it's part of the concept of the event is that riders who want to do that can. Other riders can choose to sort of surf the middle ground where they may tackle a particular either segment or portion of the course and decide they're going to go for it as fast as they can. Uh, there's nothing that says that, for example, in the middle of a, of a 100-mile Fondo, you couldn't pick one particular climb and say, today, I'm going to do my best personal time on that climb. And then afterwards, maybe you upload to Strava and you look and see what you did. So you use the group to get there, you stay fresh, you stay hydrated, and then you hit it. You could also say... I just want to do the best I can in a certain section and try to keep up with certain riders that you know are in attendance and typically are pushing the edge of what you can handle. You also might just treat it like a road race. I will say that in general, as a general rule, in Europe, there tend to be more Fondos that are treated like flat-out road races. Sure. In the U.S., there are days where riders treat them Fondos like road races, and in my experience, most of the time, those riders end up doing 100-mile time trials by themselves. I've seen that on a few occasions. And if you want to knock yourself out and go obliterate yourself for 100 miles, be my guest. It's interesting. I've seen that a couple times where 
I've, I've been up at the front. It's kind of leisurely sometimes at the start of these events where there are time segments because mm-hmm. why go hard? But somebody inevitably goes off the front. We actually, you and I saw this last mm-hmm. year at Oat Root Rockies on the, the Queen stage. Yep. Somebody went off the front. We never saw them again the, the entire day. day. Yeah. So he had a really hard ride by himself. There was a lot of climbing. There was a tremendous amount of wind. He was out there by himself. And he crossed the line first, but we had a much better time, I would say, because we rode with some pros. Um, We rode together. We had a group to work with when we were crossing some of the most exposed areas. Mm -hmm. And if you're taking it seriously, we actually, some of the people in our group put up better overall times that day than he did, which makes Mm -hmm. sense. We had a group to work with, and we were also chilling out a bit in between the the time segments. In between segments or challenging segments. Yeah. It's important to remember that these segments make it different from a road race because it's not who got to the end of the segment first. It's what's your time on that segment. So you can finish that segment an hour after another rider. But if you do that segment faster than them, you're going to get a better result. Right. You can also game the system a little bit. Absolutely. You can sit at the back of the group. And yeah, we'll get into that. I did that last year. (laughs) You can do that on the right types of terrain. I think the other big difference to point out here is that if you treat a Fondo like a 100-mile road race, or for example, if you do a 100-mile road race in the middle of a stage race, and halfway into the stage, you get shelled, or a third of the way into the stage, you get shelled, or even if it's just a really hard day and you're going all day, no matter how well supported the race is, no matter how many feed zones there are with neutral feeds, no matter even if you've got a good team and good handouts, there are times when you're racing at a reduced capacity to, or at a reduced level of hydration or fuel. I mean... You can deplete your glycogen store significantly in an hour and add a few hours into an event and you're running out of fuel real quick. Mm -hmm. Hydration is a much bigger problem, right? That's the single biggest thing that prevents someone from going to a stage race on their own. If you don't have a feed, how are you going to finish the long days? Yep. In any Fondo, whether or not they have time segments, if you're smart, you're never running on empty because there's food and water everywhere. There's too much sometimes. There's too much sometimes. (laughs) Right. Yes. Most, Most of the time. Most of the time. So... On all these fondos where you stop at the aid stations and you're filling bottles and you've got energy drink and you've got bananas and Rice Krispie bars and all kinds of other stuff and probably a bunch of things people shouldn't be eating, you're going to be fueled and you're going to have gas in the tank. And that means you can go harder and deeper on the harder efforts and you're going to be less depleted at the end of the day. So it's a different experience. So what that means is you can use a fondo, whether it be a single day or multi-day event, as a springboard to train for a competitive race, and it can be a very hmm. effective tool. Could use it as your training block, yeah. in a sense. Yeah. I mean, I've done Oat Route the last two years, Rockies, and it's it's 35 hours of riding in mm-hmm. six or seven days. Like, I'm toasted, but you, you come out of it yeah. in much better shape than if I had done a stage race like Bose, for example, which would be roughly probably equivalent load in terms of rock KJs. But I'm certain that there are points in Bose when I just don't have access to food or water, mm-hmm. even when I was riding on a professional yeah. team. I went to a uh, Grand Fondo in early August last year in, in Sarnia, Ontario. So it was actually a fairly flat course. And the Toronto Hustle team, which is the top semi-pro team in uh, Ontario, uh, came down to the event. And let me tell you, they were there to race. They were there to train. When we were on the, quote, slow segments between the, the actual time segments, their entire team was on the front driving us. They were they were there to go hard to get a workout, mm-hmm. and they made sure they got it. It's exactly what you're saying. It's, it can be really good training. Mm-hmm. Uh, Derek Scissors Sivers is the guy who invented and created a, a huge company called CD Baby years ago. Gotcha. He's one of the first Tim Ferriss guests, and he's a 
I think he's a quite smart guy. And he tells this great story. He's not really a cyclist per se, but he tells a story that's a cycling story. and is very applicable to what we're discussing today. And he used to live near Long Beach. And for a number of years, he was working, working, working. But he just very, very analytically said, well, I need to stay in shape and not become obese and be inactive my whole life. I'm working like crazy to build this company. So daily, I'm going to go out and do a bike ride. And it's going to take me about 45 minutes. I'm just going to go as fast as I can. You know, it was a typical Western mentality, you know, yang energy, like accomplish as much as I can in that distance. So he would mm-hmm. ride up the bike path from Long Beach to a certain point and then turn around and come home. And he did this for, I don't know, months, maybe a year or something. I, I don't remember the specific details of the timeline. And he, every day was just wham, wham, wham. And his times kind of went down at first, you know, started out at maybe 48 minutes and then he got down to 45 minutes and then it was like 44 and he couldn't break 44 minutes for this particular route. Kept going, kept going. And then after a long period of time, of kind of time sort of stagnating one day he was like, man, I'm sick of this. I've been doing this forever, you know, and, and I'm just out here grueling myself on this bike ride. And so he kind of stopped doing it for a couple of days. And then one day he said, okay, I'm ready to do the bike ride again, but I'm going to, I'm going to frame it from a different approach. I'm not going to care about my time. I'm not going to time myself. I'm just going to go ride. Enjoy it. And I'm going to enjoy it. So he rode along and he did his thing and he's checking out the girls playing, you know, beach volleyball in the bikinis and looking at the ocean and, you know, does his thing and he, he gets to the turnaround point and comes back. And then he just happens to glance at his time, which he was recording. He just wasn't watching. And his record was 44 minutes. And on this day, he rode like 46.15. So the point was, he rode what he felt was maybe 50% of the effort that he was in previous rides. But his time barely changed. Yep, right. And so the takeaway for me on that is there are moments when during a Fondo, you feel like you're absolutely pouring 100% into the pedals or really during any bike ride. And if you back down your effort a significant chunk, it can change your perception of what's happening. You get the chance to look around a little bit and enjoy your ride and converse with other people. And I'm not saying you have to go so slow that you're having lengthy discussions. I think that's better left for the rest stops or the non-time sections. But we don't always have to go like rabid dogs every time we're on a climb. You don't have to hit the accelerator to the floor all the time. And that also sort of plays into my point about the the events with time segments or even just with rest stops. I think that you get into that road racing mentality of I'm in the middle of a hundred mile stage. And if I get dropped, I'm going to get dropped from the Peloton. And then I'm going to be by myself, not having any fun. And and I'm also going to feel a little bit like a jerk, maybe like I wasn't prepared for this event or I don't belong in this event because there's the Peloton of 60 or 80 people riding away from me. And I got done by myself. And that's not a happy feeling. But in a Fondo situation where there are regular rest stops and time segments, or even if there aren't time segments, there's always an opportunity for recombobulation. Yeah, this everybody's a, regrouping. Everyone's at times regrouping, and, and sometimes you regroup with a different group, exactly. and then you get to meet new people and yep. and yep. experience it from their perspective and, and yep. all of that. So that's happened to me at Fondos where I've you know I've been with a certain group of riders and we had a really good pace line going. We've been gelling and going hard, and we get to the rest stop and they were sort of in a hurry. And I'm going, I'm not really ready to leave yet. I think I'm just going to hang out and you just relax. And sure enough, another group will come along. You start riding. You kind of combobulate into a cohesive mass. And before you know it, you're going whatever speed you're going and then things work out. So it's, that's one big positive to these events is there's kind of always someone to ride with, right? It'll work out on the road. So don't stress too much about being that person who gets dumped. That's more for a strict race format is where you need to sort of wrestle with that paradigm. So the story I'll share that's very similar is that Grand Fondo I did in Sarnia last summer. A friend was there who was an ex-racer and he came kind of with the goal of 
I'm going to ride with my wife. I'm going to ride with some friends, and I'm just going to have some fun here. But we all lined up on the start line. He lined up at the front with us. And as soon as Toronto Hustle took us up to 30 miles an hour and started driving the pace, he was hanging on with his teeth gritted. Just you know, <laughs> he, he went into racer mode. He's like, I got to hang with these guys. Yeah. And he was with us for about an hour until, and you could see he was not enjoying it at all until, mm. and he, I had this conversation with him. He's like, it just suddenly occurred to me that I was here to enjoy my time with my wife and I was mm-hmm. not doing that. Yeah. Mm. So he dropped out of the group, went and found his, his family, his friends, and, and had a much more enjoyable ride when right. he was consistent with what he was trying to do. So I think the point you made earlier is there's a lot of different goals that you can go into Grand Fonda with. But make sure you know what your goal is and be consistent yeah. with it or it's going to yeah. be an unpleasant experience. I'd say it's a great strategy to go to the line kind of having a clear idea of what your plan is. Of course, that plan can change on the road. I think one of the beauties of Grand Fondo is you can get a little bit of everything if you want. Mm-hmm. You can you could totally relax the entire day. Or you could get a little racing in by going hard on the segments or hitting a climb really hard and then back off basically eat a buffet lunch in the <laughs> middle of it if you really wanted to pick another group mm-hmm. hang out meet some new people etc so yep. you can make it whatever you want it to be and it can be mm-hmm. multifaceted on that day and that's the nice difference from a road race road race you can't do that you have to hang on you get popped at any moment your day's over yep yeah for the most part yep as i mentioned before bruce bird fellow canadian has won the grand fondo world championships three times in his age category but I can tell you from having raced him, he'd give the elite race a good run. One year, he broke away near the start and rode solo to the rainbow jersey. So let's hear what he has to say about training for a Fondo. So you have won the Grand Fondo World Championships three times now. And even more impressively, my understanding is you really didn't take up cycling until you were in your 40s, correct? That's right. About the time I turned uh, 40, I started doing duathlon, competing in duathlon at about the age of like 38, 39, and then into triathlon. There's a lot more people participating in those events. Um, and then um, it was just too sore from running, and frankly, I'd be lifting after every event so for a while. Uh, so it was just I got to cycling like I think a lot of people do in there. What is unique about your training, or what did you discover that has made you so strong at this Grand Fondo-style event? Do you think it's it's just that's where your natural talents lie, or is there something particular about your training that you do differently to, to be good at this this four, five, six-hour uh, length event? Well, uh, a lot of what uh, I talk about on the show uh, each week is kind of reinforcing a message that I'm receiving all the time. You continually talk about, you thought I'd do that long ride once a week uh, if it's possible. Absolutely. You got to do that. And I make sure that I do that. When I meet up for my group ride, um, I've already already ridden an hour or an hour and 20 minutes before the ride starts. And then afterwards, I've got an hour, an hour 20. So that, that takes me to that five, six hours. That's fundamental to, to do well in, in races that are going to take that long is to actually ride that long. So you're not just going out to the group ride and hammering for an hour, hour and a half and then coming home. Likewise, you're not just going out and, and doing super easy. It sounds like you're getting the volume, but you're also doing some quality in the middle there. Is that correct? Yeah, I let the ride dictate 
the, the quote. I know that it's going to be a hard effort, um, but more of the riders around me are the ride leader uh, uh, to dictate, you know, the pace of what's going to happen. I know there's, there's a ring, a period of about maybe an hour and a half where there could be some hard efforts in within the ride. I, I never want to end up riding alone on the ride, like the packing and, and trying to get out on my own because I ride alone all week, all the time in my basement. So when I go for a group ride, a big part of it is the social aspect. Right. Is actually be, you know, trained around other people that aren't avatars. Back to the show. All right. So we uh, have touched upon all the different aspects here, the different types, the different um, styles of riding that take place at Grand Fondos. Maybe we should talk about the training for the event, training for something that is both an endurance effort, but could have some five minute, 10 minute segments in it where you might want to go hard or a good amount of climbing. In total, it'll probably be a big day on the bike, many hours of riding um, and perhaps a lot of elevation gain. So there's a lot of things going on there. What What is the general starting point for training advice for a Grand Fondo? Well, I think, first of all, you have to make the rider robust enough to handle the demands of the event. So that depends on what your goals are a little bit. If you decide you want to go into the event and really treat it more like a race, then you're going to have to be able to handle those race efforts. So you want to research the course a bit and understand what you're going into. If it's something you're doing locally and you know the course, that's one thing. You can go in the challenging segments yourself or the challenging sections yourself and sort of figure out what's what. Um, you can even do a few practice runs. If you're traveling to somewhere exotic or you've never ridden these climbs, then that requires a little more, a little more research. Uh, fortunately, there's this thing called the internet, and um, this other thing called <laughs> fortunately Strava. and yeah. unfortunately, and unfortunately, <laughs> right? So we can we can know a lot about the demands of our event before we go into it, and then you want to start building a program around the specifics of your goals. Now, if you just want to go and enjoy yourself and ride, then your goals are a little bit less aggressive to achieve in training because you can, all you need to do basically is fundamentally be able to survive the duration of the event. If you want to have some more challenging sections or you want to treat it more like a race, then of course you've got to add some race intensity. And that means doing some intervals and breaking the course down into, into smaller chunks and basically fundamentally performing those chunks at either race pace or even above race pace. Because as Trevor and I were talking about before we began recording, there are times when you have to sort of lift the ceiling to raise the level of the entire house. And what I mean by that is VO2 is a great governor of performance and can even really impact lactate threshold and ultimately therefore endurance. If you're, if you've got great endurance, you can ride around at a super slow pace for six, eight, 10 hours. But the second you go above lactate steady state for any length of time, you're blown for the rest of the day, then your, your system wasn't robust enough to handle the demands of the event. All I'm going to add to that is Obviously, if you're doing a 100-mile event, especially if you're doing a multi-day event where it's 100 miles every day, the endurance is critical. If you're going into that event and the longest ride you've done all year is two hours, mm. uh, I'm sorry, you're in trouble. Yep. Uh, so you need to be getting those long rides in. And I think you, as you're getting closer to the event, you need to be doing the periodic four or five-hour ride and not just noodling along. The, you know, that's where you get into that ride at aerobic threshold or, or do some time at Sweet Spot or go the the local Saturday morning group ride and, and ride with the group. One of my favorite training rides to work in my endurance is to go do a five, six hour ride where I, I ride with the group and, and that gets me two and a half, maybe three hours. Then I might recover for half an hour and then I go do some Sweet Spot work mm -hmm. and just crawl home after 600 or six hours with 
a whole lot of training stress in the system. And, yeah. and I think that's going to help build you to the, towards this type of event. But you're, you're spot mm -hmm. on. That can make you go a really long time, but you're going to be going a really long time with this Grand Fondo solo. Even if you're just there to have fun, it's no fun by yourself. Yeah. And I guarantee you, when you hit those time segments, even your friends who are saying, oh, I'm not going to compete. As soon as they cross that time segment start line, they're going it's, hard. It's easy to get in the racer mentality and, and suddenly you're pitching in and doing your thing. Right. Yeah. So you need to have an, at least enough of that top end mm -hmm. to be able to hang with them. Even if you don't care about winning the segment, you yeah. want to be there yeah. at the end with them. Yeah, and I would say we could probably take a step further in this conversation and look at, in terms of the demands of the event, if you've got, let's say you you know that you've got a 100-mile day on the on the books um, or in the schedule, to use our generic example, and it's got long climbs in it, and some of those climbs are towards the end of the day, then when you've already done 3,000 kJs worth of work, it's a far different story to try to do a half-hour climb at race pace than it is to do a half-an-hour climb after a 20-minute warm-up. So you're going to want to start to tailor your training towards the demands of that ride. So just like you were saying, Trevor, about doing the group ride first and then recover and then get some fluids and then you go do some sweet spot. That's a great way to prepare your body to handle that load under a fatigued state, right, within a given day. An alternative methodology could be you might lift some weights and then go ride afterwards. That's going to fatigue your fast twitch fibers and then you've got to, you've got to handle that fatigue while you're riding. A more aggressive strategy would be do the opposite, ride first and then lift weights. I would caution people against doing that without being a bit careful because you don't really want to hit the gym too glycogen depleted. It can be destructive or potentially compromised form. So there's my which is a big fine issue. print, which is a huge issue for gym strength conditioning. I'm a massive advocate for strength conditioning. I think that cycling is, of all the repetitive, addictive, endurance, aerobic sports there are, cycling is the best at making athletes asymmetrical and dreadful at everything but cycling. <laughs> it's the king. Uh, running is at least open chain. And, yeah, and if you run on trail, you've got some variation. Swimming, it's not 100% sagittal plane. You know, rowing, it's at least whole body. Cross-country skiing involves things like balance and lots more than the sagittal plane. But cycling is the worst one. It makes all athletes, eventually it brings out asymmetries and also your force, your capacity to make maximal force. The longer you ride your bike, the worse it gets. Point is, I think a strength and conditioning program is essential. I think it's a great a great way to help complement cycling and make you strong. And that can certainly play into a long, uh, a long one day ride or multi-day event. But to use a really simple analogy, if you take a really out of true wheel into the shop, the rim's super wobbly. Some spokes are loose. Maybe one's broken. Some are tight. And you take your, your wheel to the mechanic. You say, please fix this. And he goes, okay. And he tightens every spoke. <laughs> What's going to happen? You're going to have a wheel with... Not going to fix it. Not going to fix the problem. That's akin to blindly applying strength and conditioning. That's going to the gym and strengthening all the muscles. Right. You already have some muscles on the as a cyclist, a conditioned cyclist, that are strong and tight, and you have some that are loose and weak. So when you, you blanketly apply strength, blindly apply strength to the whole system, you can make things worse, a lot worse. The same is true for flexibility, yoga any of those types of training. That's akin to going in with a wheel that's out of true and loosening all the spokes. <laughs> then you've got a loose wheel with no, no stability, and you're certainly not going to make a true rim out of that. Yeah. So strength and conditioning and flexibility need to be applied strategically, and most people need a knowledgeable coach to help them apply that information. So we are actually recording this just a couple of days after we posted yep. 69 mm -hmm. Functional Training with Menach and Brody, and it was all about how mm -hmm. important it is to get off the bike and, and do all this type of work. Mm -hmm. And the thing I'll add to that is if you have 
dysfunction, if you are out of balance, you can go to the Tuesday night local 40-minute training race and get away with it. Yes. If you're doing a 100-mile event, more importantly, if you're doing five days of 100-mile events, if there is an imbalance, uh, it's going to show up. Demons will find you. You don't want to pay thousands of dollars to travel somewhere to go Mm -hmm. and do a hot route and two days in have to pull the plug because your knee is hurting you too much. Yeah, your back's blown out or whatever. Yeah. Well, that's about everything we have to offer in terms of training. But before we shift into talking about riding the events themselves, let's hear from Brent Bookwalter, a past Olympian, pro rider with Michelin Scott, and co-founder of the popular Bookwalter Binge Grand Fondo. He has a great sum up of preparation and the appeal of these events. Um, What are your recommendations in terms of preparing and training for an event like this? Because it is a little different from doing a crypt or or doing an hour and a half, two hour weekend, uh, weekend race. Yeah, I think one of the great things about Grand Fondos that I've seen as a rider and from the point of, um, you know, hosting one is that, you know, they really are for all abilities. And it's a it's a great place and a great venue to um, sort of experiment with a new distance or a new load of climbing or, you know, being in a pack or it's this nice entry into um, into just kind of testing your limits, pushing your limits. And I think that's something that most of us who ride bikes do enjoy to some extent. In that sort of feeling, I think one of the main things about preparing for a Fondo is that, you know, to be ready for it, you don't necessarily have to go out and replicate the exact load or experience before. I think, um, you know, if you're looking at doing a, your first 100-mile Grand Fondo with eight or 10,000 feet of climbing, it doesn't mean that in order to be able to complete that and enjoy it, you don't have to necessarily go do that consistently, definitely not consistently, and maybe not at all before the actual event you're looking to do. Um, and it can be, it's really just a matter of slowly and systematically, um, ideally with a little guidance, sort of building those systems and looking at what portions of your skill set maybe we're going to be tested or stretched the most. And then just trying to sort of tune those up and build those up. And that ultimately, I think, is going to leave you in the best position to enjoy it on event day. So if there was anything you were going to say, you should be doing this every week leading up to the event, what would it be? Oh, for sure. Just the consistency of riding. I think that's the, that's the biggest thing. And when I talk to friends of mine who are doing fondos or racing at a, an amateur level, I think the attraction is to sort of get caught up in the weeds and the details and reading the, the sort of hype and nuances of training and all the kind of details. But I continue to just preach the fundamentals and preach the consistency and doing, doing a small amount of consistent work week after week after week is going to get you a lot farther than cramming a few rides at the end of the week or just the week before the event. It's as you said, it's just stick with your training versus going out and doing some epic seven hour ride a couple of weeks beforehand. And then, uh, having a couple of weeks where you barely do anything is probably not the best strategy. I'd agree. Yeah. I, I, I see that play through my own racing and, and training life all the time. You know, the, the tendency is to sometimes panic train and pile it on last minute and think you can fix it um, when it's down to the wire. But, but really it's, it's the slow, steady path and the, the consistency that really produces the most, um, most gains and most uh, consistent enjoyment, whether it's a race or a grand fondo. Okay, so looking at this as an organizer, it seems like Grand Fondos are becoming increasingly popular to the point that you're almost seeing more Grand Fondos than traditional road races now. Why do you feel that is? Yeah, good question. Um, I think, I think like I, we usually see in the sport historically, since I, if I look at, since I've been real involved in it, is 
a little bit just the ebb and flow. People looking for new, fresh, fresh events, fresh, fresh places, um, a new way to challenge themselves, new group of people to get to know different community. I think so a little bit of that is just sort of going around the circle, you know, maybe in 10 years, we're having the same conversation and we're saying, yeah, the grand fondos aren't as big anymore. Now everyone's getting more psyched up about racing, you know, criteriums or whatever again. Um, I think that's part of it. But I think also what, you know, what we've seen with the book, Walter Binge, the, the fondo that my wife and I started about five years ago is the really the community aspect. I think the grand fondo events are really inclusive and open. Um, and as we've seen with the binge, you know, it's really not, we really don't consider it like our event anymore. Yeah, it's called the Book Walter Binge, but it's really, we really call it the binge. It's the bingers. It's that community that has sort of, you know, come together, be it from the volunteers through every participant. And there's some repeat customers in there and there's some new people that maybe come in and out over the years. But it's, it's that, uh, it's that camaraderie, it's that community, it's the experience, it's the the sort of extra time and a little more relaxed environment to, to be able to share and connect with people and not having it so centered around um, purely performance or a result number. I think that's really draws people. Today's episode of Fast Talk is brought to you by Whoop, a performance tool that is changing the way people track their fitness and optimize their training. Whoop provides a wrist-worn heart rate monitor that pairs to their app that provides analytics and insights on recovery, strain, and sleep. Know when your body is recovered or when it needs rest by getting to know your nervous system through heart rate variability and quality of sleep. Automatically track workouts and get strain scores that let you know how strenuous training was on your body and see even more data like average heart rate, max heart rate, and calories burned. Get optimal sleep times based on how strenuous your day was and track sleep performance with insight into your sleep cycles and stages of sleep, sleep quality, and sleep consistency. I can tell you by having worn a whoop myself that it provides fascinating data and can optimize the way you train, recover, and perform. And the sleep stuff is incredible. Whoop has provided an offer for Fast Talk listeners to get 15% off their purchase with the code FASTTALK. Just go to whoop.com, that's W-H-O-O-P.com, and use the code F-A-S-T-T-A-L-K at checkout to save 15%. And optimize the way you train. For the let's call it the the new, not totally beginner, but new rider that wants this as a challenge for themselves. There's pack dynamics that they might not be familiar with. What's the best way to gain some skills there? As far as pack skills go, well. The easiest way to make progress in that area is to do some local group rides. I give that advice with a big caveat, which is group rides can be dangerous. And if the pace is too fast, you can get yourself in over your head uh, quickly, especially if you're relatively new to the sport. So the best middle ground is to find a local team or a shop that's doing a clinic that can give you some basics, some pace line basics, some handling basics. And obviously this goes to how new you are to the sport. But it's an important point. Um, I think it's easy for people to go out and spend money on a really nice road bike and jump in a group and not really understand what's happening. Another great way is to approach your local experienced riders, you know, look around in the group, be aware, see the people that you can tell have been around the sport for a while and just come up to them and say, Hey man, do you have any tips on what I'm doing right? What am I doing wrong? You know, I want to learn here. And most of the time, if you ask someone for help from a humble perspective, they'll offer you assistance, hopefully from a humble perspective. Mm -hmm. uh, my other tip for, Looking for when you're in the pack as a new rider, 
it's really easy to become overwhelmed or make a mistake because your focus isn't where ideally it should be. What you're doing is you're existing in a complex system of movement. So you have to see the relative speeds of the riders. And this is not an easy thing to do. People in Tour de France Peloton still crash because there are rapid compressions. So what does that mean? That means that a little movement happens up front, maybe 20, 30, 40 riders ahead of you. And by the time that movement happens, one little wiggle of the handlebars or someone goes around a rock or goes around a pothole, by the time it gets to you, it's been amplified. And either that amplification can exist in a change in direction or it could, it could happen, it can manifest as a deceleration. The accordion uh, effect. The accordion effect or the crunching yeah. crunch accordion as the, opposed the, to the stretch accordion. The, right, right, exactly. Yeah, yeah it goes the, both ways. The stretch accordions aren't as much of a problem. Then you're more worried about staying on the wheel when the field really expands. But when it compresses, you have to be really on it. And that means you're not looking at the wheel in front of you. You're not fixated at the rider in front of you or the two riders that are an immediate view of you. You need to feel and see the entire peloton and understand what's happening. And the way to do that, the, the phrase I used to describe that for new riders is look at nothing, but see everything. Yeah. Use the wide gaze. It's hard to understand until you're in that moment and yeah. in that context, right. but mm -hmm. that's true. It's using periphery, peripheral vision, using an understanding of the dynamics of a group like that. It's a lot of things and it's mm -hmm. and it and everything's happening at speed and sometimes very fat, high speeds. So it's totally nerve wracking at first can be at can least. Be. Yeah. And it does take just pure experience and of doing it to get comfortable with some of the aspects here. But I like the way you, you've described it in some of those tips. Uh, what would you add to that, Trevor? So the Grand Fondo I did this summer, this is unfortunately how it ended. Our group, which was the 100-mile group, did a big loop and came back onto the, the main course that the other groups were doing. And the way it was timed is we got back onto the main course at the same time that the 30-mile group was coming by, which was much less experienced cyclists. And unfortunately, they hopped into our group, which at this point was mostly the Toronto Hustle or the, the local pro riders. And behind me was a woman who wasn't at all experienced with a, a, a pack, let alone you know, a, a group of pros that were going full speed and, and guttering everyone because we had a crosswind. <laughs> and I heard this poor woman behind me panic. You know, she yelled out. She was just, she had never been anything like this. And she got scared and she crashed. Yeah. And she unfortunately took all the teeth out in the front of her mouth on the, the top side, broke her nose and, and gave herself a concussion. Mm -hmm. And and I personally finished the Grand Fondo spending 40 minutes holding her head and then pace lining her very unhappy dad to the hospital Wow. Uh, to go and see how she was doing. Mm -hmm. So your point of get some pack experience beforehand is critical because this is different. This other place is different from a race. This is a situation where you can have completely inexperienced riders who have never done a race in their life in a pack with essentially pros. And especially in your example where the two groups came together, everyone yep. was tired. She was probably tired after her 30 mile ride. Yeah. But then suddenly was thrust into. Yeah. It's a recipe for disaster in, some, in some ways. You just need to be aware of your context. Right? Yeah. Ultimately, what she should have done is never ridden with our group. Yeah. that That's one of the points I would like to make is if you're feeling uncomfortable, it's just back off. Know your limits. Just be get real, out of there. Honest. You know, and, and yeah. maybe she didn't have the time or when panic hits, sometimes you just don't know what to do and you do the, the exact wrong thing. Mm -hmm. um, it's sort of like. 
you're water skiing as a kid and you go down and you forget to let go of that rope and you just get towed and towed and yeah. dragged through the water <laughs> and your dad's screaming at you, just let go. And your instinct is just on. hold on. Yeah. Sometimes that happens when you're in a group like that, but mm. better There's, to back off. There's also a peer pressure element. And this is where you have to, and I'm telling these stories to scare you a little bit, just to say, don't cave to the peer pressure because there were people in her group who had the experience to ride with us and, and they were the ones pushing to go with mm. us. Mm -hmm. Yep. And she should have just said to them, right, sorry, I'm not comfortable with this, but she, she kind of caved to the peer pressure. The club that I coach or used to coach up in Toronto, they do a trip every summer to Europe. And almost every summer, somebody has ended up in the hospital because mm -hmm. they're doing these mountain passes. And a few of the guys on, who go on that trip every summer are amazing descenders. Yep. Like to the point that I remember being in a, a race, that Centurion race I was telling you about with one of them, we hit a descent and I'm like, ah, I'm going to drop him. I couldn't hang on to his wheel. Mm. He was such a good descender. Mm -hmm. And every year there's somebody who goes on that trip who doesn't have their descending skills and feels the pressure to keep up with them mm. and crashes really hard. Mm. Yep. That's unfortunate. Well, if you're coming from Canada, from the flat part of Canada and going straight to Europe and descending some of those big mountain passes, that, yeah. you're in trouble. Yeah. It's a, a, it's a different world. Different universe. It's like when people come here from Kansas and yeah. I've never <laughs> gone uphill for 30 yeah. minutes until you go down. Yeah, exactly. So that's yeah. where with all these events, mm. there's a feed zone ahead. So this is where you just have to say, here's where my comfort level is at. Sorry, I'm not going to cape to the peer pressure. Go ahead. And yeah. I hope you wait for me at the feed I, zone. You know, you don't owe anyone an explanation for your decision on the road. Like everyone yep. should own that and take accountability for that. Like you're the boss of how fast you go. If you feel really uncomfortable in a situation, whether it's because the group's going too fast or because you can see that the pace line is riders are riding really close and you're uncomfortable with that. There are two options you always have. One is to just stop pedaling, just stop pedaling and let pe people will go around you. You're not going to, you know, even if someone yells at you, it's okay. Yep. After the line, you can come find them and say, Hey, I'm sorry. I was uncomfortable. Sorry, I got in your way for a moment. It's a fondo. They'll get over it. They can be responsible for closing the gap you opened. The second thing you can do is go to the back of the group. Figure out where the last rider is and just go be last. No one's going to expect you to pull through. You don't have to suddenly make your way back up to the front or take a pull. You can go to the back and just watch and see what happens. And you can ride a bike length off the back of that group if you want. And could be a learning how, experience back that's, there. That's my yep. point. Like take a moment to have perspective and just say, I'm going to stop going so hard and see what's happening and observe the group and learn from it. And then if you go to the back and immediately you get dropped on the next hill, well, then your answer was you shouldn't have been that group anyway. That's okay. <laughs> it's all part of the learning experience. That's why you're in the event. But don't feel bad about that. I mean, I still Agreed. remember my Agreed. first five pro races, I sat at the back because being in that peloton was the scariest thing mm -hmm. in the world. And that yeah. was after years of racing. Yeah. So if you haven't been racing for years, why should you suddenly be able to handle that sort of level of mm -hmm. peloton? Mm -hmm. No one's going to yell at you for, for being at the back and observing. People are going to yell at you for being in the front when you shouldn't be. Yes. Right. The apology is much easier when everyone has their skin. <laughs> you can always go up to someone and say, hey, I'm really sorry I yelled at you. I just didn't know what you were going to do. And I felt like I needed to communicate. And they go, yeah, no harm, no foul. 99.99% of the time, that's how the conversation ends and everyone's happy. But if there's a crash, it's another story. And it's a whole different discussion, unfortunately. No one wants to see that. And so. you brought up a really good point. If you end up in a field that you're uncomfortable with, don't swerve right or left to get just, out of it. Just, just slow down, slow let down, them pass you. Let them pass. Yeah. The other riders Be predictable. Will see. Yeah. Yeah. In a that's sense, a great rule. In a sense. That's a great rule. 
What about the the nutrition side of things here for for everybody really? There's there's cookies at every feed station. Exactly. What more do you want to know? How many should you eat? That's what, <laughs> what I'm asking. How many should you eat at the first, second, and third? As rest many house? as you can push into cookies. your mouth, <laughs> <laughs> and more in your pockets for later. How much food can I walk away from this event with? <laughs> Free food. Free is always good, right? Colby has some really great points to hear here, but I'm going to just start with the general rule of. This is not the time to be eating things you're unfamiliar with. I thought you were going to say, if it's meat, eat it. <laughs> no? Also a good rule. There's <laughs> cows in the field right there. You could just take care of it yourself. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, so I'm, I'm you know, let, let's go into the minutia, but I'm going to say, if you've been riding and eating particular types of food and you don't typically eat cookies on a ride, it's probably, unless you're absolutely starving, you have no choice. Mm. It's probably not the best idea to start wolfing down the cookies at the right. feed station. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. This is why I eat everything on every ride I do so that when I get to Grand Fondos, <laughs> I can just splurge. Gut training. I would say that it's really important for a rider to be to know themselves as an athlete and know what works for you. Everybody's got their quirks. And humans are a bit unique in the sense that as a species, um, because if you feed a tiger eucalyptus leaves, he'll die. If you feed a koala meat, a koala will die. But humans, we can get away with more. I can survive off Do you know spinach. that for a fact about the tiger? Yeah. I mean, Eucalyptus leaves? Well, yeah, think about it. A tiger, a tiger is an obligate carnivore. Right. Most other species are like that. They have, they have a very specific narrow range of foods that they can eat and thrive off of. Cats cannot fully convert omega-3s. So unless they get it from an animal source. Right. They're in trouble. Humans, we have we're we're more diverse in that sense. We can survive off of whale blubber or uh, potatoes or spinach. Some of us may do better than others. We we've got a more a microbiome that's capable of di- ingesting more foods and still surviving. Hence, Twinkies and McDonald's. Mm. Um, although I surviving being a relative surviving term. being a relative <laughs> term and um, quite for, enjoying it. Surviving not, not, not thriving being remember, a relative. Health term. is your greatest treasure. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I would say it's really important for an athlete to know themselves and in particular, know what what fuel is going to work for you to do a deep effort. If you want to go do a 100-mile day on the bike, you should be fueling your body with food that's going to reduce inflammation and give you good energy and good, give you good steady blood sugar levels. And then you should know what you can tolerate on the bike. It surprises me the number of times I hear people have a disconnect between, well, yeah, I did this 100-mile ride and I ate 12 gels. And then I had diarrhea for a day and a half. It's like, well, wait a minute. What are we missing here from this equation? Um, maybe Can we, we should just find that. Say we've already addressed gels, but I'm just going to give mm. the short version of people think that is the ideal race and training food. <laughs> and I'm going to give you my strong opinion, which is it is convenient. There are times to use it, but it is not the optimal food. I would actually say there are other foods that are less convenient, but far more optimal Gels for performance. So far from the optimal food. I mean, you can also lick cake frosting. Yes. Like that's what it is. It's cake frosting. So mm. I would argue a gel is the ultimate convenience food. And when you're in the gutter at 55K an hour and you're being paid a salary and it's raining and you're hanging on for dear life, that's a great time for a gel. Right. Or when you have four seconds between the top of your climb and the descent begins and you need both hands on the bars because you're going to be going a million miles an hour, that's a possible time for a gel. But when you are in a Grand Fondo yeah, and there are feed why? stations yeah, and yeah. your life is not on the line, sitting there saying, mm. I'm a serious cyclist, I'm going to go right for that pile of gels, mm. is probably not the best strategy. Agreed. Well, and how many people at Fondos are actually making a salary to ride the Fondo? Right. So my point is, 
try to try to keep the ride and the event and the bigger perspe- bigger picture perspective of your own global health. And if that shouldn't mean destroying your digestive tract for three or four days because you ate a bunch of fig newtons that you would never normally eat because you got to a rest stop and that's all there were. So now if you run fine off those and you've got a bomb-proof gut and that's kind of the food that you're used to or you know you've got a track record with that and it works, then okay. But I bring food when I attend rides like this because I prefer to have a certain food that I know works for me. And then there may be times where I supplement with foods at Absolutely. the rest stops. This is what I do too. Yeah. And bring what you're familiar bring with. Bring, bring what, what you're familiar for. with and works. And and I was joking earlier about the, you know, air quotes, free food. Rocket science here. There's nothing really for free. You paid for the food. You paid for the rest stops because you paid an entry. So it's not free. So try not to look at it as I can eat as much as I want as in spite of our cookie jokes. But take what makes sense. Use the rest stop to fuel yourself. Be smart about it. And experiment beforehand. We talked about that hard five, six hour ride as a prep. Yep. That's a good time to try different foods and see what works for you. And there is a big individuality. I had a athlete many years ago who did the Trans Rockies, which is the, the grand fondo of, of mountain biking, mm-hmm. where that's five hours a day on, on a mountain bike. And I gave him a whole nutrition strategy. This is a long time ago when I was like, oh, there is only one strategy for all cyclists. And it wasn't working for him. Mm-hmm. And on the third day, he discovered beef jerky. Mm-hmm. And I kid you not, he was doing these five-hour days with just tons of beef jerky <laughs> stuffed in his jersey pocket. Yeah. And he did great. And he smashing it. He yeah. was smashing it. And I will still say, I can't find a lot of sports nutrition books that are going to back that. Mm-hmm. But boy, it worked for him. And mm-hmm. that's, that goes back to my point about the tiger versus the koala. Some people will run better off beef jerky and others will run better off of eucalyptus leaves. Whatever the <laughs> spinach, I guess. Sure. I mean – and I, I know this from my own personal experience. I'm working with a lot of my athletes. There's some who just need heavier food and can tolerate heavier food during exercise. I am, I'm more on that end of the spectrum. You know, I remember doing a 120 mile road ride with Jonathan Vodders one, one day long, many, many years ago as a junior. And he ate, literally ate a chili cheese dog in the middle of the ride and he was fine. That's a bit extreme, but uh, there are other people who have to eat a lot lighter and can't tolerate as many heavy fats and need a few more carbs. And Without going down the rabbit hole of macronutrients too much, I'll say that there's a lot of discussion right now about ketogenic diet and what's in fashion right now is vilifying carbs. But And I know you've covered this in other podcasts as well. Right. But ultimately, when the more time you spend above threshold, everyone runs on carbs above threshold. I've, I think you'll agree with me that data is pretty overwhelming in that aspect. Yes. Yeah. So. No, I am not a ketogenic, you know, going pure ketogenic diet and staying ketogenic diet is going to make you a better cyclist. Mm. I think it will, if all you want to do is go at a nice slow pace and you don't care when you get to the finish line, it's mm. great. But if you do want to perform, if you want to have that top end, there is a requirement for carbs. Yep. I'm just, I'm not on that side of endurance athletes need to be eating 65, 70% carbohydrates and, and trying to get a thousand grams per day either. Mm. I don't think that's necessary. Uh, so I think there, there's a balance in between. But what I would say is for the particulars of of the sports nutrition, we, we've done several episodes on that. We yeah. will do more episodes on that. Uh, but for the Grand Fondo, I, I think our biggest recommendations are the don't just eat what they have at the rest stop because it's there. Don't try to consume as much as you can because it's free and experiment beforehand. Yeah. Find know what, works, what for works, you. works for you. Know yes. For and you. if you don't know, figure that out, figure that out yeah. before the Grand Fondo for sure. And Practice. There's, there's no difference between going to a rest stop at a Grand Fondo and seeing a whole, you know, 15 different food choices than there are when you go to the hotel morning breakfast buffet. You should make 
the best choice for you at that moment? The, the best thing about the feed station is uh, all of us being racers here can tell you the biggest issue is getting enough fluids. Yes. And you, that's where you need a, you know, I can get, I've seen a lot of athletes who can get through a four or five hour race without sufficient food as long as they're getting enough fluid, enough fluids. Yeah. Uh, which can be a real struggle in a road race. And that's where every time you get to the feed station, you know, if there's a quarter of, you know, left in your, in your water bottle, polish it off, fill it back up, make sure you're leaving every feed station full of water bottles. Off. But yeah. what if there's a timed segment up a really steep climb right after the segment? You don't want two full bottles on your bike. You don't. I, I'm cool with it. I'm not, quite cool with it. I'm not going to win the time segment on the steep climb anyway. You're going to try, aren't you? Sure, but I'm not going to win. <laughs> I've been doing this long enough. Oh, okay. you know how the sport works. Uh, any Anything else you'd like to add, Colby, about the final things you should do right before the big event, whether it's a multi-day stage race type Grand Fondo or a big one-day event? What What do you do leading up in the days and weeks? So if this event is a big goal for you all season, one thing I, I recommend my riders do is clear the calendar in the week to two weeks before. And the reason being is that especially if you've been building towards this for weeks or months and it's really a season goal, this isn't the time to decide to take the cat to the vet or go to the dentist or decide to stain your deck. You know, these are things that can wait until the weeks after the event you've been building towards for months. So clear the calendar of anything extraneous and use that extra time for recovery. The single most important recovery modality is sleep. So ideally, you replace those extra appointments with a short nap in the afternoon. You go to bed earlier, etc. And I won't get too far down the hole of, of recovery modes, but basically you want to emphasize recovery going into any event like this that you're really focused on. The other aspect that I'll talk about is the taper and basically the longer the event and that means both on a one-day event or if it's a multi-day event, the bigger your taper needs to be because the fresher you need to be going into it. So you're balancing keeping the legs open and keeping things moving with, if you're doing a six or seven-day Fondo-style event, an oat root or uh, something similar to that, you want to be pretty fresh going into that. So the week before, you really not don't need to be riding too much. So that's the time to let go of that, oh, I'm going to lose my fitness mentality. I need to keep doing more intervals or I need to go do one more big long ride. It's time to let that go and work with a coach if you have one. No cramming right before the big event. There is no cram before the exam for stuff like that, especially. All you're going to do is make yourself tired going to the line, and then you're just not going to enjoy it as much, or you're not going to get out of it whatever you're looking for. So the bigger and longer the event is, the bigger and longer the taper needs to be as a general rule. This also goes back, though, to what you were saying is what is your goal? If there's a target event, absolutely. But you've also brought up the good point that grand fondos can be fantastic training. And yes. then you take a very different approach. So the example I'll give is, that Centurion, which we have in Ontario, which I've done every year, is two and a half weeks before my target race each mm -hmm. year. So I actually do about a 25-hour week Perfect. that pretty much finishes with, with this, this Centurion. So I go into it with fatigued legs. Yep. The longest I have ever lasted in the field was five miles before trying to break away. And look, I've never even – I don't even think I've even stood on the podium of this race. I, I get my butt kicked. But That's it's basically, point, right? I go in with fatigue legs, I break away from the start and just go, how long can I hold them off until yeah. I am just absolutely smoked? Yeah. And that's my only goal with it. It's to use it. It's just a fantastic training ride mm -hmm. to destroy yourself in ways you could never do on your own. So that's your nail in the coffin for your training block and then you recover yeah, then after I'm that done. and then you're ready for your peak race a couple weeks later. That's yep. perfect. Yeah. So exactly like you said, if you're using it as a training event, then you've got to use it in the context of training. Talking about the final prep for a Fondo-style event wasn't in our original outline. 
Colby felt it was important enough to bring it up. Interestingly, I didn't ask Bruce Bird about the preparation either, but he mentioned it at the end of our interview as a critical point. Half of the event is getting to the start line. And that's because in a standard bike race, you might have 30 to 150 riders. In a grand final, you might have 2,000 or more. Or your group might have 400 people, 500 people. So getting there, and you might not be able to count on hydration during the event. Right. Uh, you might have traveled and you have to put your bike together and you're not used to doing that. Uh, you don't know exactly where to park. Uh, there's, there's a lot of things you've got to look at after. And, and it's important to get all that right and to do it on race day calmly. You don't want to spend any energy. You want to get to the start line with everything ready to go, with that two extra water bottles, and not think like, oh, I'm climbing that hill with two extra water bottles. Oh, that's going to be too hard for me. I thought I, uh, my partners over there um, didn't make it to the feed zone. I didn't get them the instructions on where to go. And so now like, oh, gosh, i got to carry this water. Like Those things, if they start playing in your mind, you got it's already hurting you a lot before the event starts. You want to really have all the nutrition. Like that's why that long walk ride is so important. You can get used to training in a situation where you have to feed yourself during the ride, have enough energy to complete the ride well. And to know, your body can only know that by doing that long ride. And you're going to have to mimic those, those conditions. So you're going to have to bring all that nutrition with you, bring all the hydration with you, and make sure you have new tires on your wheels. You're doing a lot of different things. Uh, and so that when you get to the start line, oh, you look around, ready to go, get that heart rate down, take that deep breath, and now the event starts. All right, let's get back to the show and talk about strategy in these events. I think it's time we turn our attention to some of those gaming the system strategies or just strategy in general about how to ride these different different events, how to manage your effort across something that uh, could be quite typical could be start to finish, you go hard. Could be start to finish, you go not so hard just to finish. Or it could be super easy for the first hour and then as hard as possible for five minutes and then super easy with a rest stop in there and then as hard as possible for 15 minutes up a huge climb and et cetera. So let's talk about some of these different types of uh, coping mechanisms, strategies for getting through the different types of styles here. It's something important to point out when you are doing an event that has these time segments. Uh, we were talking before about the, you really, even if you're there just to have some fun, really working that top end, making sure you have some race fitness. Here's another way these events are different from a road race. If you're doing a five hour road race and you get popped once, your day is done. Everybody goes into those events a little worried. Even pros are going, I got to be careful of my efforts because if I get popped, yeah. my race is over. If you're coming into a Grand Fondo where you go, okay, there's a 15-minute segment, and then I can sit in a feed zone for 20 minutes afterwards and recover and eat a lot of food, Yeah, they're not holding back on those segments. They're giving each segment everything they've got. Mm -hmm. The other thing to keep in mind is, like, and I think you mentioned this earlier, is there, there's typically a lead group, as I've seen in, in these events, but that doesn't mean that you're going to end up going f the fastest because there could be a guy or a group of guys that decides they're going to do their own thing. They start slow, slower. They have their own group 
And they're just mm-hmm. knocking it out of the park on these segments and, and doing what you say, taking a little bit extra time, recovering a little bit longer at the feed zones or the, or just the times in between where they're, we're cruising easy. So yeah, there's, there's a different, a totally different mentality you can have if you're racing this thing. And you have to keep in mind, you're not necessarily racing against the, everybody that's in your group. There's probably yeah. other yeah. people out on course mm-hmm. doing something else that could yep. threaten your uh, lead yep. or. So that Fondo I did last summer, I did it with uh, one of the athletes I was coaching named Charlie. And we hit the the third segment, which was kind of about 10 minutes of flats and then a five-minute hill. And I told Charlie, get on my wheel. Um, and as we were approaching the segment, I intentionally opened about a 30-second gap mm-hmm. yep. to the leaders. Mm-hmm. And Charlie's... So they go, what are you doing? What are you doing? I'm just like, stay on my wheel. Yeah. Yep. As soon as we crossed the line, I put my head down. And my race was 10 minutes. Yep. And I closed that 30-second gap with him on my wheel. Then I completely exploded. Mm-hmm. And then he, then he went up leaders. the clock. Yep. And I asked him afterwards, how do you do? He's like, well, not so good. I was fifth across the line. I'm like, then you won. Yeah. yeah. So like, no, I was fifth across the line. I'm like, it's a time segment. Yep. Yeah. You got a 30-second yes. bonus, right. essentially. And, and he won the segment. Yep. So that's the gaming the system aspect. And if there's... It, it mostly works on segments where you have some rolling component yep. to it or flat component and then a climb. And you can do exactly what you described there, Trevor, which is, yeah, hold back a bit at the beginning and then you have to make a concerted effort to catch up. Um, this can play to women as well who are perhaps bouncing around in a, a really large uh, event with a lot of riders. The women may or may not be in the same group who are potentially winning the time segments. Mm-hmm especially on rolling segments, anyone should take advantage of a group that rolls well together. I mean, the first year I did over Rockies, there was a hundred kilometer time segment with two massive climbs in it that finished in Crested Butte one year. Wow. And we had a group of, uh, I think, 45 or 50 riders pace lining for a while at the bottom for a good 30 minutes heading into the first big climb. And then we went up the climb and that group got reduced significantly, but there were still maybe a dozen of us pace lining through the valley to the second climb. And then, of course, at the final climb, it was all ones and twosies. Yep. You know, that being placed in that group had a significant outcome on the time segment of that day. And as I remember, actually, to tell a story, um, we descended out of the village of Snowmass that morning on a really, really rough road. And both the race leaders had double flats. If I recall correctly, it was Maddie Boucher and Mm -hmm. Emma Pulley were both riding that year. And Maddie had to, I don't know, you know, glue together some tubes with twigs and leaves (laughs) or something (laughs) because there were so many flats. Yeah. So he did not make it up to uh, the rest of the group, which had most of the ride leaders with it at that point. He had to do the entire time segment, probably with a much weaker group to help him on the flat sections, and then most of the climbs by himself. And he went really, really deep that day. It was a really impressive ride for him to keep the lead. Uh, I don't know how he did it, but anyway, the guy's a beast. So and Emma managed to keep her lead too, too and um, that was pretty impressive on her part. But that leads me also to what you were saying a moment ago, Trevor, about a 15-minute segment and people going for it. This is a perfect opportunity for someone who would normally not necessarily dig past a certain point in a road race. Because if you if you explode in a road race and you go out the back, then you're done. But in a Fondo, where you've got time segments and a chance to recompobulate, you know, you have an opportunity to potentially push yourself deeper than you might otherwise. You could try that gambling attack on the rolling section. You can climb faster than you've ever climbed before. See what happens. And if you explode into a million pieces and crawl in, there's still going to be people waiting at the next time seg- or at the next rest stop anyway after the segment ends. Or even if there is no segment, there'll be people at the rest stop to ride with. So for those of you who are thinking about 
um, are using the event as training or as practice for racing or are as using it as an entry-level racing event, think of it in, in ways that you may not approach a road race because there are possible, there are, there are methods you can use during the ride that will allow you to push your boundaries and explore and figure out what your true limits are. And the consequences, if you think about it, aren't the same as they are in a road event. Yeah. I mean, if all else fails, you can get a lot of cookies at that next. If you're just like, you know what? I'm out. Just go eat cookies. <laughs> just eat cookies. I went way too deep. I had two nuclear explosions. One was a right and one was a left on that last climb. I'm done for the day. Cookie time. That's fine. I'm going to eat cookies. I'm just going to roll in social place <laughs> yeah. for the rest of the day. Chris, Perfect. this is the only thing you've gotten out of this conversation. <laughs> cookies. Is just, Chris is just, I'm looking at him. He's been spending the last hour just sitting there going, I didn't eat enough cookies when I did the hot route last year. What is wrong with me? I didn't get my money's worth. <laughs> So yeah, I, I think you do have to, it, again, this this pertains to the people that are racing it, but you do have to shift your mentality a bit. It takes some getting used to, takes some thought if you want to game the system. I don't think you should look at it as people are, quote, cheating or something like that. That would be wrong because it's a grand fondo. You can do whatever you want to do. In my experience, though, the the front of the front of the pack is typically the strongest guys and, and women and there isn't a lot of gamifying going on. They're not trying to to play the system and get that advantage. It's pretty much straight up racing in these segments. That's my experience. Colby, would you agree with that? Well, if Tim Johnson's not around, yes. <laughs> yeah, that's a good, very good point. <laughs> very good brother. point. Though bear in mind, if you are going into this, you want to race, and you're focusing on trying to get the fastest time on those segments, you have to look at this a little bit differently from the races. The, the transitions in between don't matter. Don't yep. kill yourself in the transitions in between and be tired for the segments. Yeah. I think if you're a sort of a second tier person, though, what you need to keep in mind is if you're regroup, if you're getting dropped from the, the fastest people in the segments but are able to regroup with them, you probably want to stay with that group as long and as, as much as possible because if there's a flat section – you want to stay with that group rather than getting left right. in lo- no man's land. So mm-hmm. there's a little, there's a lot of thinking you have to do to sort of play the system the the best way, the most appropriate way, yeah. the most advantageous way. So far, we've we've kind of concentrated on the single day Grand Fondo in terms of strategy. What about the multi day events? Treat it like a stage race. What, what are the what are the nuances there that should be kept in mind? Just like any multi day stage race, um, if you're doing a multi day Grand Fondo something like an oat route in, in Europe or in, in the U.S., um, you definitely want to look after yourself after the stage. That means eating quickly after the stage finishes, getting cleaned up, in some cases getting massage if you can. Uh, if you've got compression, that's a great way to look after it. Obviously, you're hydrating quite a bit. I prefer to hydrate directly after the stage. What I've noticed is some people tend to kind of linger until 8.30, 9 at night, and then they go, oh, man, I probably haven't drank enough. And then they slam a bunch of water, and then guess what? You can't pee, sleep. You got to pee four times during the middle of the night. That disrupts your rest. So think about timing that. And same thing goes for the morning. You want to wake up and immediately rehydrate because you do lose fluids when you're asleep at night. You sweat and you're you're losing um, re- you're losing moisture through your your exhale respiration. Your respiration. So, but if you drink a bunch of water right before the start, then your problem is you've got to pee the whole time. And if you have to pee like crazy during your first or second time segment, you're not going to be riding too fast. Or you're going to be too distracted. Those are little bits that are important to look after. And then, of course, you're eating according to your, your body type and eating foods that are going to sustain you and enable you to have good recovery. I prefer to do a bit of meditation in the afternoon after a hard ride like that, especially if I have something coming up the next day. I'll do that with compression. 
kind of make it a, a package deal. So that works well for me. Also sit with my legs elevated vertically against a wall. If there's a harder section of floor, I'll use that. And it can kind of help reset the SI joints in the pelvis. So the weight of the leg drops down into the pelvis and, and lets everything reset. And I found that to be particularly effective with compression. It's kind of a, a double whammy. So the only thing I'm going to add is a non-strategy thing at all, which is quite often if you're doing a multi-day event like this, you might find on the first day that uh, you were in the wrong group. Mm. Uh, quite often the people that you come to the event with have very different goals from you. You might just want to be leisurely and they might want to race it or vice versa. Mm -hmm. And you're going to find yourself partway through the first day in a very different group. And one of my suggestions is to make this event as enjoyable as possible. Mm get the names of the people that, that you ended up riding with if, if you like them and coordinate with them the next day. You might find you're going to enjoy it much more riding with them than the people that you were originally riding with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And for people that maybe this is the first time they ever do a multi-day event, what sort of mm. advice would you give to them in terms of metering out the effort from day to day to day? It's really easy to go way too deep on the first day. Yes. It's really easy. Because you're fresh, you're excited, you've got adrenaline, you've got, you're doing the event for the first time. So there's all these new people and fancy bikes and amazing wheels and shiny just, things. And shiny things. It's easy to get carried away and and think that you can handle the load, and you probably can for one day. But don't forget, you've got to back it up with multiple days after that. So the typical curve in a stage race is that you are fresh on the first day, and the second day you feel like someone tied a tree stump to the back of your bike. And you can't get out of your own way. And then if you bounce back from that curve and you recover well, then on day three, you've got what I would call the rhythm of the event. So if you're a little bit clever, you don't go too deep on the first day so that that curve doesn't go too deeply on the second day. Because if the second day is challenging and you want to do well in the overall or at least have consistent performances, if you really tank yourself on the first day or, or you really go deep on the first day and then you tank on the second day, that can be the day where you lose a whole bunch of time. And you become, you, you're no longer competitive. And then by the time the third day comes, you say, oh, well, now I'm riding with these people that dropped me yesterday. That's a sign that you went a little too deep. Intensity discipline is the key to that. You want to govern your efforts on the first day. And the rule of thumb I use is never at any given moment, never go deeper than 90% of what you think you can do. And that's generous. But that you got to be really honest with yourself because when you're fresh, 90% doesn't feel very hard. Even 90, 98 or 99%, especially after big taper, doesn't feel, air quotes, hard. That's not what it's about. It's about having the experience to, to meter your effort and be realistic. Also, you can use, of course, power and heart rate to help triangulate your how realistic and how honest you're being with yourself. Some people are really lucky and by the third or fourth day, they just suddenly feel amazing because you have, it's not because they're, they didn't do any damage to themselves. It's because they have all their natural painkillers flowing and they just don't feel it. Mm -hmm. But 90% of the people out there at the event, they are hurting. You get on the bike in the morning of the, the third or fourth day and your legs don't work so well. Breaking 100 watts feels a lot harder than it used to feel. That's normal. You need to ride yourself into it a little bit, but also remind yourself that's how most people are feeling. Yeah. Is there an art to interpreting the road book that you'll get before one of these multi-stage events where you look at it and say, okay, I need to take day one at 80% because day two is no matter what I do, it's going to be a hundred percent type of effort to get through it, et cetera. You know, yeah. what's what you, you've done a lot of stage racing in your life, some multi-day grand fondos. What's well, one part of the art is you have to know what country you're in and then you 
you know if it's you, what you're seeing is actually real. Determine the accuracy <laughs> of the road of the root book based on the country you're in. Yeah, um, yeah. Because there are some hidden gems in there. Um, <laughs> if you're at La Ruta, if right. you're in Costa you know, Rica, don't example. trust anything. <laughs> yeah, Volta Venezuela, also 12-day state race I did. A lot that wasn't in the Bible. It's just the way it goes. So you have to kind of know what you're in for a little bit. But yeah, I mean, obviously you want to look at uh, the route for an event, a multi-day event, and decide where the queen stage is. You want to assume that that's going to be your hardest day and you've got to plan your week strategy to a degree around that if your goals are to be competitive or if you want to just have a strong, solid performance. So if you tank yourself on the days where it's not going to have as much of an effect on your placement overall and then you're you're smoked by the time you get to the queen stage, then you you played your cards wrong, obviously. For an event like Oat Root in the Rockies, for example, there were there were massive climbing days pretty much every day. And even the time trial was a giant 30-minute climb. Every day required a fair amount of climbing, but there was still a queen stage to be to be dealt with, which we did last year. So yep. you want to you want to just have a, a good instinct for the root book and look at it in advance and kind of digest it and absorb it and, and look at it and think, okay, what what are going to be the most challenging moments for this ride for me? And anticipate those. And then just like any good bike race, at least 50% of any bike race is made up on the road. So understand that there are going to be all sorts of unforeseen events and factors that influence how the day plays out, whether that's a hailstorm or some flat tires or a dropped water bottle or hopefully not. But, you know, every once in a while someone falls off their bike because gravity is just relentless. Or just um, bad legs on a day. Just really bad legs. You do everything right. And some days you go there and you go, man, I'm just, I'm, yep. I'm just empty. So I got to figure out how to deal with this on the day. So my, one of my favorite quotes is from Tim, I can never pronounce this, Tim Crabbe, the writer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where he says in the book, the, this is a paraphrase. I can't remember the exact quote, but it's the good racer licks his opponent's plate clean before he starts in on his own. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I love that line. And I'm talking right now about how good racers approach stage racing, which is they want the inexperienced riders or a lot of the other riders to waste energy on the first few days. Mm-hmm. And so they'll kind of goad you. They'll take little attacks, things like that, to, to get you to waste energy. But there comes a day in the stage race when they know that most people are tired, when they're going to show just how strong they are. Mm-hmm. But they're going to make sure your plate is mostly cleaned up first. Mm-hmm. Be one of those people. If you're going there, going to one of these events to race, don't be the person that shows up and just treats the first day like there isn't a day two. Right. And you show how strong you are on that first climb. And then the rest of the time you are just struggling to hang on or getting popped. Yep. Which goes to the point of managing your own energy. Just like in training, if you are set to do a certain number of intervals or a certain length ride, and then you hear about so-and-so who's doing more intervals or a different type of ride or a different group ride or smashing this climb. And then you start to question your own process. You got to focus on what's going to work for you. It's the same same story during a one day long ride or a, a multi day event. You got to focus on what is realistic for you, what you know you can do. And if some some guy goes full Batman in the first five minutes and flying off the front and looks like he's going a million miles an hour, well, you also remember you don't know his story. In particular, for these multi day events, there are occasions where people are only actually doing one day for whatever reason or two days yeah, in the right. middle of the event. So, right. or even better. Last year we did Old Root and a bunch of fresh people showed up for the final day at Pikes Peak. Yeah, cruel. <laughs> that's just, that's cruel. Just <laughs> I mean, Pikes Peak is just brutal on its own, let alone after you've been riding hard for six days. But when people have fresh legs, it's just lambs to the slaughter. So it is what it is. You do your thing. Wouldn't it change how fast I went up the mountain, which was not very fast. But. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right. Well, you know what time it is, Colby. You've done this before a couple times, I think. Take-homes. you got 60 seconds to encapsulate everything we've spoken about to give our listeners your key tips from today. Cookies. <laughs> That's, hey, I like the way you're thinking. Low-hanging. Low chocolate chip. Sorry, what, sorry. what are we talking about? Double chocolate chip? My wife makes a mean ginger cookie. Mm, yeah. Yeah. With a little chocolate on it or... Uh, she typically does it in her recipe, although I'm not opposed to it, okay. as long as it's dark chocolate. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. You're welcome, Phil. Um, <laughs> so let's see. Takeaways from today. I would say treat the event, you know, think about the event and how it plays into your season. The nice thing about a Fondo-style event or an event with time segments, whether it's on the road or gravel, is that you can use it how it fits in your program. You can use it like Trevor did in his example at the end of a really big block of training to kind of put the nail in the coffin, so to speak, and add that final load. You can also make it your opportunity to uh, be as competitive as you want to for the year in a perhaps less structured or stressful format than a proper road race. So that's to your advantage. You can also use it as a place to test yourself, to try new things. Uh, and I don't mean new things in the sense of food or drink. I mean new things <laughs> in the sense of testing your own ability to push yourself really deep or try new tactics, see what happens. Because if you're using this type of event to refine your skills for a road race or road events, then it's a great format to do those things. I would also say just be honest with yourself. If you want to go there and be competitive and you're getting caught up in the pace and you're hanging on for dear life every day and that's how you want to ride it, then fine. But if you go there with a certain intention, try not to let yourself get caught up in the spirit of the event too much and sway from your, your goals. Use it for what it's going to be, for the box it's going to tick in your life and in your cycling career for the season. Trevor, what do you think? So I think 60 you, seconds. What, what's the metric version of 60 seconds? 60 seconds. 60 seconds. <laughs> I know this. Seconds didn't get screwed up. <laughs> Can you imagine we had 100 seconds? 100 seconds or 100, 100, 100 minutes minutes something else. 100 uh, weasel met bumps. metro weasel bumps. <laughs> <laughs> we just, you know. No. Absolutely. You horrible. got 60 schmooper boopers. You're on, you're on the clock. Hit it, Canadian. I don't know how much time I have. <laughs> yeah. I haven't learned the conversion. <laughs> Galactic units. No, I think, you, I think you hit the big one, which is when you do a road race, you really don't have a lot of options. You're, you're there to race, and if you get popped, your day is over, where there are so many different ways you can approach a Grand Fondo and an Oat Route. And the only thing I'm going to add to what you said is just make sure you know your goal. Otherwise, you're, you're not going to have a successful event. So I think my take home is just going to be touching on the big, big overview of the, the training. You need the endurance. Don't go to one of these events with your longest ride being two hours. You, it's just not going to lead good places. So mm -hmm. you need to do that endurance work and you need to do tough endurance work as you're getting closer to the event. But don't fool yourself, even if you're just there to have fun to think you don't need any sort of race fitness at all. So I, I'm glad Colby brought that up right from the start, saying you need to be doing some interval work. You need to be doing some high intensity. Really just, we, we've been asked, how do you train for a Grand Fondo? And people think it's really unique. I would really say, the, how would you train for a, a long road race? It's basically the same thing. Yep. And I have 60 schmooper boopers as well, so I will take my turn. I find it out of my timer. <laughs> I really like Grand Fondos. Um, there's a time and place for great road races and, and stage races, but one-day Grand Fondos or multi-day Grand Fondos can be really fun. Um, for I think what's most fun about them is the variety of types of people that are able to do them. You can choose your own adventure. You can make them what you want them to be. You can get 
a lot of people there that are into the racing. One thing that we, we really didn't touch upon, but I think is important is being able to feel out what, if you're, if you end up in a group, being able to feel out what everybody wants. So you're not the only one that's like, come on, let's go or pushing things or, or just being the outlier there. And it's, it's nice to be able to feel your way into what everybody else wants to do. And you have that collective agreement that we're, you're going to ride easy between the segments or you're not going to ride easy between the segments, but don't be the outlier. So yeah, have fun with them. Game them if you want to. Don't game them if you don't want to. But uh, yeah, they can take you to great places. They're often in, in destinations that you might not see otherwise. So take advantage of that and enjoy the whole experience. That was another episode of Fast Talk. As always, we love your feedback. Email us at fasttalk at velonews.com. Subscribe to Fast Talk on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Google Play. Be sure to leave us a rating and a comment. Become a fan of Fast Talk on Facebook at facebook.com slash velonews and on Twitter at twitter.com slash velonews. Fast Talk is a joint production between Velonews and Connor Coaching. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. For Trevor Connor, Colby Pierce, Brent Bookwalter, I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.